Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. Senior White House correspondent for The Hill in Washington, D.C., Amy Parnas joins us. She covered Hillary Clinton during the election of last year. She's now covering the Trump administration. She's written about politics for over a decade, and prior to this assignment, she chronicled the Obama White House and the 2008 and 2012 presidential elections for Politico and The Hill, respectively. She appears regularly on national television programs, joining us to discuss her book, Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. It's available for purchase at Amazon.com and most major bookstores. More than a pleasure to have uh, co-author Amy Parnas, who also wrote with Jonathan Allen, Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. Amy, good afternoon and welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Leslie. You know, a lot of people on the uh, Trump side who supported Trump say, let it go. But I constantly will see, you know, right-wing bloggers, right-wing pundits, right-wing radio hosts and television hosts, talk about what was wrong with the campaign, and of course they all think it was a flawed and failed candidate rather than a flawed and failed campaign or some other factors, uh, not wanting people to not read your book because I want them to. Right. Um, but would you, would you say that the candidate had something to do with it? Are, the, are, are those on the right correct to a certain degree or not at all? Yeah, I think it was a combination of things. And my co-author and I have been very clear to say, yes, it was Comey. Yes, it was Russia. But it was it was the candidate in the sense that she had eight years to kind of fix what went wrong in 2008. And she wasn't really able to do that. She, di- she did make um, good on some promises. And she brought in some Obama, some fresh blood from the Obama team. And her, um, her world wasn't as... Um, as insular as it once was, but I think she did err on the side of, um, you know, she did make mistakes, and I think that's why um, my co-author and I um, kind of hold her responsible for a lot of these things. Uh, You know, she didn't listen to her husband, and as a married woman, I get that, but one of the things Bill Clinton did speak to her about and warned her, he said, don't forget those disenfranchised white blue-collar workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and exactly. And you heard Joe Biden say the same thing that um, recently, a few days ago, that he would have been speaking to them. These were the same people who supported her in 2008 and were somehow forgotten this election cycle. And what's interesting and fascinating in our book is we talk about that Bill Clinton, who you know likes to talk to people on the ground, basically keeps flagging Brooklyn and keeps saying, hey, there, there are problems here on the ground. Um, why aren't we addressing this? Why aren't you sending me to talk to these people? And, you know, they, they, the response was always, oh, well, our data is telling us this, this. And, you know, they wanted to emulate the Obama model so much that um, they felt like if they turned out the African-American community and the Hispanic um, 
communities that they would be okay um, and that they would win. And so, in you know, they, they forgot about the white working class, and I think that hurt them in a big way. And, and I no, no disagreement there. Um, was it also, do you think, just that people were sick of names they had heard before, Clintons, Bushes, and, uh, you know, people perceived to be inside the beltway? I mean, you know, even, even though some people may not have liked the message from Donald Trump, some of them liked the messenger, which is he's not a politician. Without a doubt, and I think that's why you saw so many people rush to Bernie Sanders, because they wanted someone new, and they wanted someone who felt um, – you know, that understood them and was could kind of relate to them. And I think Hillary Clinton saw problems just when she, even before her candidacy this time around, when she was, when she launched her book tour, Hard Choices, and she said that she and her husband left the White House dead broke. I mean, I think that kind of caught a lot of people off guard. Um, it made her seem unrelatable. She also, um, you know, hadn't driven a car. These are things that people kind of want to see. They they want to sort of know that you can feel their pain. Um, and I think Bill Clinton did a better job of actually um, trying to feel their pain more than she did. She wasn't, um, I think she was a mismatched candidate for this particular cycle in, partic- in particular. Uh, you know, you are covering Trump's campaign now. Mm-hmm. Um, you covered Hillary, so, right. so this is uh, something that, or not Trump campaign, his administration. Right. Um, uh, but but one of the things that a lot of people, I was a very strong Hillary supporter, my, all of my listeners know that. Mm-hmm. Um, people, you know, uh, scratch their heads that with such knowledge, I mean, this is a woman who married to a man who was governor, lost the gubernatorial seat, gained mm-hmm. it back. Mm-hmm. This is a woman who saw her husband become president, was, you know, first lady, saw him impeached, saw him reelected, and then she herself got elected as um, a senator and uh, worked as secretary of state. Somebody who knows politics, who knows campaigns, knows how to win, knows how to lose, knows mm-hmm. how not to lose, and then the amount of money and the influence of not just she but her husband worldwide. Um, you know, uh, I, I mean, we see that she got the popular vote, and obviously the Electoral College is what it comes down to here in the United States. Right. In covering that campaign, was it the well-oiled machine that everybody thought that it was? Well, it should have been, is the thing. Um, but I think that she lacked some basic, um, some big things, inclu- including a message. Um, and I think, I know you're a supporter, and um, I talked to a lot of people who um, were supporters and are supporters, and my co-author and I wrote this whole book talking to people inside the campaign. And one of the biggest things we heard, for, even from people inside the campaign, was that people didn't really understand why she was running for president this time. And sure, she's the smartest person in the room. I will always say that. She's the biggest policy wonk. She knows policy in and out and not just talking points. But she didn't really convince people why she should be president. And she didn't give them that big idea, that big reason for why. And we interviewed someone, a senior advisor in her campaign that said, that told us, I would have had a reason for running or I wouldn't have run. Um, And I still think if you talk to people now, they can tell you a list of things that she stood for, but they couldn't really tell you her rationale for why she was running. And I think that was a really big problem that loomed large for her this campaign cycle, and one she didn't learn from from 2008. Are we looking at I mean, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, whispering about things. 
there's no way she'd run again, right? Or, no, I don't think so. I mean, she really, she felt like she was the best person to run this time. She needed some prodding even um, to run, but she felt like she had to do this. It was the closest a woman had ever come to actually winning um, a nomination and, might, and maybe the White House. And I know a lot of people close to her didn't want her to run. And I think that she says in our book, this was my last race, and I really believe her. I think that it took everything she had. And, you know, I think a lot of what's been lost in the coverage of our book is that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, these people wanted her to lose, or um, this is a really biased book. And when you actually read the book, you, you can see that, you know, we're, we painted, uh, we kind of humanized her in a way. She had thrown everything she had into this race. Um, and I think that's evidenced in our, in our book. Um, but I think she she couldn't do that to herself again. And I think that's why when you hear people talking about whether or not she's going to run for mayor of New York, I think, um, I don't think she will. And, and, you know, she's very clear in our book, um, in the, in the last couple chapters, um, that this was her last race. Also, um, you know, in, in your speaking with her, certainly things made the book and, and things didn't. What does she, who does she, I know she would say, I take the blame, but what does she think happened? What does she think? <laughs> I think, as as you've heard her say in recent weeks, I think she thinks that Comey and Russia are to blame. And it, and she kind of accepted responsibility um, a few weeks ago in one interview where she said, yeah, I was the candidate. And, you know, she kind of gave up Buck Stop's here answer. And, and I think that was the closest that she's come to actually taking responsibility. But I think, you know, so I do think that she, she really feels wronged and she feels like those two factors doomed her. But I think, you know, had it not been, had she not set up that private email server, Comey wouldn't have been involved. Um, she, the email scandal controversy, whatever you want to call it, loomed large over her entire campaign, even before it started, um, for good and bad. And I think that that's sort of what led to all these problems coming up in, you know, at the end of the campaign. And I think that's one of the reasons why. And yes, sure, I, I will give her credit for, for, for Comey and Russia. And I think those were two major factors. But there were so many other factors, as we talk about in the book. Uh, speaking of uh, Comey, there are people that say, oh, no, not at all. But, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about right after he made that announcement, um, right. you're talking about almost a 3% drop. Uh, in her um, approval rating uh, 11 days before the election. Uh, does your research show in your book, Shattered, uh, that Comey, you know, that, that, that it was like the perfect storm? It was the candidate not going to Wisconsin and hitting those white, blue-collar workers that we talked about. We can't deny that the numbers show African Americans did not come out for her as they did for Barack Obama, and that uh, many millennials uh, who supported uh, Bernie Sanders stayed home. So, um, uh, you know, how much did Comey uh, – well, uh, let's start with that first, Bernie Sanders. Right. Um, did this division in the party, in a, cell, in a sense, shoot ourselves in the foot? In other words, are, Democrat, are Democrats to blame or Bernie or both people partially to blame for Donald Trump? I think so, because I think a lot of them um, just couldn't quite um – but couldn't quite support her in the end. And you saw that particularly, I think one of the most fascinating elements of this was millennial women. And I talked to a lot of these people throughout the campaign, and they just, for whatever reason, they think that they'll see another woman candidate in their um, in their lifetimes, and they and a 
another president maybe or a one president um, run. And so I think a lot of them didn't feel compelled to vote for her. Um, and I think Bernie Sanders actually did contribute to a lot of um, why people stayed home, because particularly at the end of the primary, you heard him really kind of hammer home um, the fact that she was in the pocket of big banks. And, um, and you know, and I think that that storyline kind of um, followed her into the general, and, and he was doing it so late in the primary that it kind of remained in people's minds as they went to the polls and or didn't go to the polls. And so, yeah, I do think that there was a Bernie factor. And we have one scene in the book that kind of talks about where his own head was um, after he endorsed her. And he's kind of reading through a script um, of he's about to cut an ad and his advisors are around her. And he asked to actually say the words, I'm with her. And he says, I can't say this. It's so phony. And so it kind of shows you where his own mind space was, you know, that the fact that he had to come around and endorse her, but he obviously felt like she wasn't the right person for the time. Um, I think that speaks for a lot. It says a lot. Um, and also, let's go back to, uh, to to Comey. I mean, she thinks that she says Comey in Russia. What is, what is your research for the book find? I yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that was a factor, particularly because it came um, two weeks or less than two weeks before the election. Um, but I think, as I said before, I think you know he had it, he wouldn't have been involved had it not been for the fact that she set up an email server. Um, a private email server, and and I think people kind of forget that um, in that in that sense. And so, yeah, I, I do think that it was a factor. It kind of, um, it it kind of, I don't want to say. I think it just um, it gave that storyline or this narrative of what else can what are the Clintons hiding and what else what else are they going to say? Um, can we trust Hillary Clinton? It gave that a little more oxygen than, um, than I think she would have liked. And I think it definitely hurt her, um, in the end. When we, one of the things that you guys had talked about in uh, your book is how Hillary Clinton's leadership style promoted drama and infighting rather than quelling it. And that's odd to hear when you see how much drama <laughs> was in the Trump campaign and is in the Trump administration. But uh, tell us about that. How, uh, what kind of a leadership style did she have that you know, promoted that, and why, and why do you think that is? Well, we talk about the various people surrounding her, and there were, you know, Clinton world is a big universe as it is. You have his world and her world, and then she brought in um, the Obama folks, and she had people from all walks of life in her own worlds um, work for her, and sometimes they their interests uh, didn't match up. And so what you had was, um, so John Podesta, a longtime Clinton person, is brought in. Robbie Mook, a guy who likes evidence, a guy who relies on data, is brought in. Um, and these two aren't um, the best of friends, I guess you can say, and they don't trust each other, and they're her top two aides. And um, and then she, you know, she loses um, faith in some people during the campaign and kind of promotes people and elevates other people and even creates a board of directors of sorts called the Super Six. Um, so they, they, these people are actually the ones managing her campaign, and no one really knows about this um, throughout the campaign. We're the first to report it in our book. I was going to say, until <laughs> your book came out, I didn't know about that at all. Never. No. <laughs> I mean, there were all these rumors. And, and kind I mean, of... I'm Robbie and all those, you know, like, follow me on Twitter and retweet, and, you know, we talk to each other, like, you know, through, you know, social media. Um, right. Never had heard of that. 
No, no, no. And so they kind of, that was one lesson they learned from 2008, that the sto- these storylines of infighting had been kind of splashed all over the newspapers and on the cable networks, and they didn't really want that out there. Um, but but it was um, the case, and there was this Super 6. And so, um, you know, this board of directors was in charge of managing the campaign. And, um, you know, and there were times where she lost faith in, in her campaign manager and Robbie Mook and, and wasn't speaking to him at various times. I mean, there were all kinds of storylines that no one really knew about. Um, so it wasn't the most seamless campaign, but I should add, few are. <laughs> Um, you know, there there are always problems in campaigns, but it was interesting that they kept this kind of swept under under the rug for um, the campaign's entirety until we reported this. Yeah, it is. Well, what, what would you say is uh, something that maybe you didn't know about in addition to that, something else you want to share with our listeners, or you know, something that just shocked or surprised you in your research for the book, Shattered? Um, that's a really good question. I think... Um, I, I think that was really the most interesting part. And the fact that, like, she really, as I said before, we really tried to humanize her in this book, and she came in really prepared. She is a student, and um, I was always kind of um, blown away by how prepared she was and how she, um, the debates, um, how she kind of, she took it very seriously, and each debate session, um, how much time she spent and put into it. And I think, I mean, just knowing that about her, I think, Yes, she wasn't the best candidate, but it shows that, um, you know, in governance, in in policy, she knows her stuff and isn't faking it. And I'm always fascinated by that element in her. Uh, I was going to say, and here, this is the second second example of the smartest person in the room doesn't always win, because I thought she personally, and, you know, I was on the road, you know, doing television from the various debate locations, you know, at Mm -hmm. Hofstra and in Vegas, St. Louis and Vegas. And I have to say, sitting in my hotel room, or uh, depending on the time, one of them was hotel room, and two of them I was in the, you know, in the room or off to the side in a media room, you know, with a huge screen next to it. And I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm I'm just watching her wipe the floor with him. Oh yeah. Oh, he watched John Kerry wipe the floor with George W. Bush at three mm-hmm. out of three debates, and and, and also uh, lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though John Kerry was a policy wonk and knows his stuff and was beyond uh, prepared more so than George W., just like Hillary was more so than Donald Trump. Right, right. I know. And, you know, we tell that story and we tell the story of the Benghazi hearing and how she sat through 11 hours and how, you know, there are all kinds of, they're, they're behind, we take you behind the scenes and give you the upstairs, downstairs on all these moments. And I think that's And, that, and that's why we have you on, because we want people to have your book. Amy, <laughs> um, I'd like to have you on in the future. I hope you'll come back to talk more about what you cover in the current administration. But we Thank want you. To check out your book, Shattered, Amazon.com. Every bookstore has it. Please follow Amy on Twitter at Amy Parnes. It's A. M-I-E-P-A-R-N-E-S. 